This is an ABC podcast. Hi there, loyal Minefield listener. It's Scott Stevens here. Waleed isn't with me because this is a little extra that we're dropping into your Minefield podcast stream. Our sister program, Big Ideas on RN, very sweetly recorded a public lecture that I had delivered on the 10th of November 2022. It was a lecture that was hosted by Australian Catholic University. It's a part of a lecture series that was founded by the great Australian moral philosopher Raymond Gator. You know how important he is to us. And it's a lecture series that's named after the great Jewish French moral philosopher Simone Weil. If you've listened to any of the show, you know how important she is to me. Anyway, if you're interested in the minefield, you might be interested in listening to this. It functions as a kind of companion piece to the quarterly essay that Waleed and I wrote. It touches on many of the themes we touch on the show. So we hope you enjoy it. This is Big Ideas. I'm Paul Barclay. Social media is the new town square, but it's a town square which you enter at your peril. Important debates can rapidly disintegrate into personal abuse, with complex ideas reduced to short, sharp slogans. In this lecture, you'll hear how the ability to argue and disagree well, to treat others with respect, is the cornerstone of democracy. RN's Scott Stevens delivered this year's Simone Weil Lecture on Human Value. Simone Weil was a French philosopher whose work is honoured in this annual lecture series from the Australian Catholic University. Scott Stevens is the co-host of RN's The Minefield and editor of ABC Online Religion and Ethics. And a warning, this lecture contains some graphic content and strong language. Let me begin with three epigraphs. Democracy most of all affiliates with the open air, Walt Whitman. You start to think of contempt as a virus, Zadie Smith. It's a wonder that you still know how to breathe, Bob Dylan. For the better part of the last three years, since the invitation for the lecture came, in fact, I've been preoccupied by a pair of sentences belonging to the 19th century American essayist and philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson. We do not breathe well, he wrote in 1851. There is infamy in the air. Emerson's words take on an almost oracular quality. They have an undeniable pertinence at a time when the very act of breathing has seemed so fraught, so fragile, so weighted with moral, even political significance. Just think with me again of all that's transpired. It started in late 2019 with Australia's ancient forests ablaze. In a matter of weeks, the fires consumed nearly 13 million hectares, claimed the lives of 33 people, and immolated 3 billion animals, leaving much of the southeast of the continent gasping beneath clouds of ash. Australia's cursed summer was soon overtaken by an autumnal catastrophe in the form of an airborne contagion, a stigma in the air. That was the poet Paul Ceylon's term for plague, a stigma in the air. Ever since the emergence of its initial strain, the world has been at the mercy of a novel coronavirus, which has infected no less than 600 million people and killed more than 6.5 million by asphyxia. Then, mere months into the pandemic, 
a 46-year-old black man was depicted in a video during an arrest on the side of a street in South Minneapolis. The footage of his increasingly desperate cries for help, his pleas for air, unleashed a worldwide reckoning with the toxic legacy of racial cruelty and contempt, provoking many thousands to march under banners and signs or otherwise inscribe on their bodies words that read, I can't breathe. This sequence of crises, each one what we might call a crisis of breathing, has left us at once acutely aware of the air around us and uncommonly suspicious of our fellow breathers, wary of their capacity to infect us, to deprive us of the ability to breathe. You could say that these events, in fact, have impressed upon us a recognition of the communality of the air, that the air is not just breathed, but shared, that it's our dwelling, our habitat, our common home, that the air is the medium of our natural existence and the vital element that sustains our lives and bears our words one to another. But we've also seen, for just this reason, that the air can perversely be withheld or denied as a form of punishment, for instance, or torture. Or else the air can become so polluted by the unheeded proliferation of social vices like vanity, egotism, callousness, inattentiveness, thoughtlessness, deceitfulness, distrustfulness, vengefulness, cruelty, injustice, and brute intimidation, that it becomes, in effect, unbreathable for others. Which suggests, I think, that there is another crisis that belongs in this sequence. Less obvious, perhaps, but no less consequential to the state of our common life. And this is the crisis of what we used to call the airwaves, which is to say that technologically, mediated communicative spaces between us. It's hard now to recall that the airwaves were once the subject of endless fascination among philosophers and poets alike, many of whom prophesied that the rapid development of communications technologies, from the hand press to the steam press, then to the double cylinder press, then to the revolving press, leading finally to the transatlantic cable itself at the middle of the 19th century, Many of these philosophers and poets prophesied that this technology would have the effect of inclining the hearts of citizens within a nation and citizens between nations toward one another in empathy and fraternal recognition. It's a phrase you see coming up again and again, fraternal recognition, the recognition of brothers. And no one was more enthusiastic about the moral possibilities occasioned by the innovations in communications technology than America's incomparable philosopher-poet of democratic life, Walt Whitman. Here he is, in 1858, writing in the Brooklyn Daily News, praising the news that the transatlantic cable had finally been laid. This is Walt Whitman. We cannot begin to estimate as yet the vast consequences of this great achievement to humanity and the world. Should the wires work as is anticipated, and no new misfortune arise to damp our expectation. He uses the word damp there very deliberately because the ships that were laying the cable were nearly scuttled by a storm at sea. No new misfortune would arise to damp our expectations. Such momentous results will follow as cannot now be even faintly appreciated. Not only will the Atlantic cable be a means of communicating intelligence as to the rise or downfall of stocks, 
Not only will it be a material agent for the transmission of late news for the press, but it will have a vast moral effect. It will be a civilizer and a peacemaker. It will be like the dawn of a millennium day to the troubled nations. It will usher a golden age of peace on earth and goodwill to man. That's what communications technology is going to do. In our time, Whitman's breathy optimism can't help but seem quaint, even naive. It was certainly short-lived, even if the spirit that Whitman gives rise to here persists in the BBC's motto, adopted in 1927, nation shall speak peace unto nation. By the end of the 19th century, the rival tabloids which held untrammeled sway over America's Gilded Age had already divined a perverse market advantage to be gained by inciting hostility between nations and factions, by pumping anger, contempt, and mutual suspicion into the political air and reaping their unseemly profits at the expense of the health of the underlying democratic culture. Walid Ali and I have uh, argued this point at some length in our quarterly essay, so I'm not going to go over it again here. But let me just point out to all those who now want to blame the impoverished condition of democratic life on social media, for nearly two centuries, even as the machinery of mass industrialization has been filling the Earth's atmosphere with the very pollutants that now are rendering our common home uninhabitable, the successive instantiations of the mass media have also been emitting what Soren Kierkegaard would describe in 1846 as speech without a speaker, words without the goal of meaningful human communication, an abstract noise, surely an uncanny premonition of the algorithms that drive these social media platforms, all of which would gradually, he said, deposit a kind of atmosphere that would finally suffocate real human speech, rendering real human communication just as superfluous as machines have made workers superfluous. Extraordinary prophecy, I think. It's hard to imagine, in fact, a more prescient description of the afflictions of our social media-saturated age. But let me return to Emerson's words. We do not breathe well. There is infamy in the air. The original occasion of these words was an address that Emerson gave to a gathering of citizens in his hometown of Concord, Massachusetts. It was the first of three lectures he would deliver between 1851 and 1855 on the subject of slavery. It was not, however, the first time that he turned his attention to what he called America's greatest calamity. Seven years earlier, in 1844, he accept, accepted an invitation from the Female Anti-Slavery Society in Concord to address their celebration of the 10th anniversary of the emancipation of slaves in the British West Indies. In that lecture, Emerson picks up a theme that's not altogether unfamiliar in his work, but that gains a certain urgency when it's considered through the lens of slavery. And that theme is the problem of our unacknowledged or barely acknowledged conspiracy with injustice. Conspiracy is an important word here. He reminded his audience, proud inhabitants that they were of the more civilized northern states and therefore far removed from the barbarity of the plantation. He reminded them in line by line of this lecture that the delicacies on which they dine each evening and the comforts which, which, with which they adorn themselves each day are themselves the products of a regime of systemic degradation and cruelty. And yet, he says, it's their graceful distance 
That's the phrase he uses. It's their graceful distance from that suffering that permits his neighbors to live in a kind of effete oblivion to the dreadful debt they owed to the slaves who picked their cotton and boiled the sugar cane. As Emerson puts it, unforgettably, the sugar they raised was excellent. Nobody tasted blood in it. But the complicity, the conspiracy that Emerson divines here is not confined to food and clothes. The taint of slavery was to be found in every corner of civilized life. And that life, from its commercial transactions to the everyday commerce of words, needed, he said, to be turned inside out to discover slavery's lingering stain. And so he writes, language must be raked. The secrets of the slaughterhouses and the infamous holes that cannot front the day must be ransacked to tell what Negro slavery has been. That's all in 1844. So Emerson then returns to and intensifies this point after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850. It was a craven, vulgar piece of legislation aimed at appeasing an increasingly belligerent South by compelling citizens of states where slavery was illegal to return escaped slaves to their southern owners. Let me say that again. The Fugitive Slave Act, meant to hold the Civil War at bay, was a piece of legislation that compelled the citizens of states where slavery was illegal to return escaped slaves to their southern owners. The compromise that was made was at best a tawdry compromise. And it was one that in fact precipitated the Civil War by forcibly enlisting every citizen into the maintenance of a corrupt and all-corrupting institution. The effect of this law was to shatter the illusion that citizens' physical distance from slavery's bloodhounds, its chains, its whips, its dungeons, afforded them a certain moral distance from its barbarism. But for all Emerson's fury that such legislation could be sponsored by conscientious statesmen, enacted by Congress, and even sanctioned by the Supreme Court, he admitted to at least being glad for the moral clarity this law afforded as to the health of the Republic. The passage of the Fugitive Slave Act, he said, had the illuminating power of a sheet of lightning at midnight, for it revealed the extent to which the contagion of slavery was airborne and pervasive, and that no institution was immune to its perverse logic. And so, with particular exasperation, he asks, what's the use of a federal bench, referring to the Supreme Court, what's the use of a federal bench if its opinions are but the political breath of the hour? In line after line, once again, Emerson confronts his audience with the full implications of the word conspiracy. Remember what conspiracy means. It quite literally means breathing together. It's not only that America's hallowed democratic air bears the cruelly denied aspirations of fellow human beings for dignity and happiness. That as the philosopher Stanley Cavell puts it, our conditions, remember also the word conditions, the Latin root of the word condition simply means speaking together. You can see how breathing and speaking, this flows through every line. Uh, nor is it also, as Stanley Cavell puts it, our conditions, which is to say all our shared words are indeed the words of slavery, and the air we breathe is pervaded by thoughts of freedom and hence of slavery. 
It also insists, uh, Emerson, that citizens by their acquiescence to the existence of the Fugitive Slave Act, by their consumption of Southern sugar and their enjoyment of Southern cotton, by the tacit consent they gave to the toxic conditions of their common life, had themselves conspired to make the air unbreathable for others. Emerson seems in this way, I think, to have anticipated something of the moral force that we can already sense in the words, I can't breathe, indicating as they do the recognition that in a democracy, the air is more than just oxygen, and want of it is more than just asphyxiation. Given the way these words have resonated across each of the crises that I've mentioned before, I think it's worth reflecting on just what it is then that is denied when people are denied air. Consider this question. What are the moral conditions in which George Floyd can plead with his captors, telling them, I can't breathe not less than 27 times while he lay prone with a police officer's knee pressing down on the back of his neck? Or 43-year-old Eric Garner, saying those words, I can't breathe, not less than 11 times as he was being choked by one New York City police officer while another pushed his head hard against the pavement and at least two others placed their combined weight upon his back. Or 26-year-old Dungati man David Dungay Jr. 12 times while five guards held him face down on a mattress in a Long Bay prison cell. And in each instance... For the desperate pleas of these men to be met with a kind of blithe contempt. If you can speak, you can breathe. What could account for the inhumanity of this response to another human being, an extremist? Or take the police killing of 44-year-old Eric Harris in Tulsa, Oklahoma. After being tackled to the ground by several officers, Harris is shot in the back by a Tulsa County Reserve deputy in a cruel variation of what is by now a common theme, one of the officers rests his knees on Harris's hairless head, pressing skin and skull against the unyielding surface of the road. Harris begins to shriek, my God, I'm losing my breath, to which another of the officers replies, fuck your breath. Let me ask it again. What are the moral conditions that would permit such violence to be done? and such words to be spoken to another human being in a state of, of mortal distress. Something I think had to take place prior to each of these men losing their lives that created the conditions in which their lives could be taken from them in this way. Simone Weil gestures, I think, towards the beginnings of an answer to this question when she describes the essence of unassailable force as, quote, the ability to turn a human being into a thing while still alive. Such a person, she says, becomes a corpse before anybody or anything touches them. And so she explains, this is in her extraordinary essay on the Iliad. While the grossest and most summary display of force is also its most obvious, namely the ability to kill, the more insidious kind of force is the force that does not kill just yet. It will surely kill, it will possibly kill, or perhaps it merely hangs poised and ready over the head of the creature. It can kill at any moment, which is to say, at every moment. 
In other words, the sheer asymmetricality of force renders the one who wields it unresponsive to or unanswerable to the moral reality of the other person and therefore utterly heedless in the violence that they are prepared to inflict. Heedless. There's no hesitation. There's no impediment. Because they do not recognize in the face of the other person or hear in their pleas any moral impediment to the exercise of their power, there is no, it's a crucial phrase of Simone Weil's, there is no interval of hesitation prior to the act. The term interval of hesitation, I think, is vital. The impression she's trying to give is the hesitation that one feels when one approaches sacred ground. I'm not sure what I'm doing here. I'm not sure how to proceed. Therefore, I'll wait. I'll stop. I'll bow. I'll worship. Those who exercise force in this way can thus be said in that they don't see in another person any moral impediment to the exercise of their power. Those who exercise power in this way can thus be said to be in a state of soul blindness. They cannot see their fellow human being as a human being. They are simply a thing while still alive, a body without breath, against whom violence may therefore be inflicted, but without the accompanying moral injury. To put this slightly differently, and I know it sounds strange to put it this way, before each of the men that I've named could be killed, they first had to be deprived of their breath. This is a strange idea, and it finds an even stranger precursor in a little-known tale by the 19th century, do we call him a writer? I don't even know, Edgar Allan Poe. It's a strange little tale called Loss of Breath. You'll have to forgive me here. It's not his most subtle. It's not his best. It is what it is. The central character of this tale Mr. Lack of Breath, I said it wasn't his most subtle. The central character discovers to his horror that he has, as his name crudely suggests, lost his breath. He mounts a desperate search for it, fueled by jealousy over the ease with which others, humans and non-human alike, can breathe or pant or wheeze or purr. The first few pages of the story are spent with him irate over the sound that a cat can make. Uh, the fact that it's wheezing and purring, it's obviously just trying to rub it in, he says. All obviously done, he complains, in derision of my own pulmonary incapacity. While rummaging around in his bedroom, looking for his breath, he cannot locate his breath, but what he does come across is a stash of love letters written to his wife by a rival, Mr. Windenough. At this point, Lack of Breath decides to abandon his marriage, and to take himself off into an exile of sorts, to depart for a foreign country where he believes he can better conceal what he calls his unhappy calamity, a calamity calculated even more than beggary to estrange the affections of the multitude and to draw down upon the wretch the well-merited indignation of the virtuous and the happy. His attempted flight into exile sets in motion then a series of bizarre misadventures that see lack of breath successively humiliated and beaten. Both of his arms are broken and his skull is fractured. His body is, mut is mutilated. And then finally, he's hanged. But the hanging is not the end of the story. May I just mention, he interjects almost casually, that die I did not. My body was, but I had no breath to be suspended. Lack of breath has, in this way, become an animated body 
without an anima. He became a living corpse. I kind of think that what Poe was trying to do in this story was to write the inverse of a fairly famous novel from 1836 by Robert Montgomery Bird called Shepherd Lee, in which the protagonist of that novel is a soul who moves around from body to body. Uh, metempsychosis was a preoccupation in the first half of the 19th century. So you get the idea. In Shepherd Lee, a soul moves from body to body. In Loss of Breath, Poe's protagonist is a body but without a soul. It's worth recalling, I think, that in the 19th century, one of the pseudo-theological pieties that was used to justify lynching from the pulpit, no less, was the notion that such a grotesque form of punishment signified the degree to which its victim had already fallen beyond the reach of grace, and hence beyond the reach of human sympathy. It was as if those being hanged could no longer claim to having been made in God's image, but rather had become mere beast. Poe may, may well have been evoking just such an idea in his later tale, The Black Cat, in which one evening the narrator, in a fit of drunken violence, mutilates the animal by gouging out one of its eyes with a penknife. The following morning, once the alcohol is worn off, he says he felt a degree of remorse, but it was at best a feeble, unequivocal feeling the soul remained untouched. Before long, he says, he grew irritated by the disfigured appearance of the cat. And so he slipped a noose about its neck and hung it from the limb of a tree. That act as well did not prick his conscience, however, because he says this victim was nothing more than a brute beast created to work for me, for me, a man fashioned in the image of God. As Lacabreth anticipates at the beginning of his tale, to be found without breath is to be estranged from the sympathy of one's neighbors and to invite their denigration instead. It's not exactly true, though, that he lacks the ability to speak and so cannot protest the violence that's being inflicted upon his breathless body. Early on in the story, he says he had dropped his voice to a singularly deep guttural which emitted not upon the current of the breath, but upon a certain spasmodic action of the muscles of the throat. So even though he does have a voice, what his lack of breath does exclude him from is the common medium in which his cries for help or for recognition can be heard. So when he speaks, he speaks into nothingness. He's condemned to inexpressiveness. He's condemned to a condition of moral suffocation. After all, not to share the air with one's fellow citizens means having no share in their common life. So what is it, then, that Walt Whitman is declaring when he says, democracy most of all affiliates with the open air? He's certainly commending the importance of communion in and with the natural world, for the ongoing renewal of America's democratic culture, just as his contemporaries, Emerson and Henry David Thoreau did. And yet for Whitman, and completely unlike Emerson and Thoreau, there remains throughout his work an enthusiasm for what Whitman will picture as the erotic energies of urban life. And so he writes at one point that it's not nature alone that is great in her fields and in her open air, 
but also in the artificial. The work of man, too, is equally great in this profusion of teeming humanity, in these ingenuities, streets, goods, houses, ships, these hurrying, feverish, electric crowds of men. Whitman's concern is, evidently, not with the spaces that human beings inhabit per se, whether they be natural or artificial, rural or urban. His primary concern is with the spaces in between persons and the degree to which those spaces are conducive to human connection. And it's precisely the task of showing the connections between people that Whitman takes to be the central occupation of a poet in a democracy that is still striving, hoping to become a moral reality. The poet is, as Whitman puts it in the leaves of grass, a joiner, one who sees how things join. Before going on, though, let me just say that when Whitman says poet, he doesn't mean what we might mean by poet. He means a worker, a laborer, a farmer, a tender. What is their field? What is their tool? They are a laborer, a farmer, a tender, a cultivator, but their primary tool are words. The words are the things that cultivate the spaces between. The work of the poet is then to keep the words fertile so that what can then grow between people is the richness, the fecundity of the spaces in between. And so he says in Leaves of Grass, the poet is a joiner, one who sees how things join. And then he goes on to this little scene. He says indifferently and alike, speaking here about the poet. This is Walt Whitman in Leaves of Grass speaking about the poet. How does he, how is he a joiner? How does he show how things join? He says indifferently and alike, how are you, my friend, to the president at his levy? And he says, good day, my brother, to Cudge that hosed in the sugar field. And both understand him and know that his speech is right. The scene that Whitman adduces here is striking, but not because the poet does anything remarkable. Neither are his words especially profound. Instead, by addressing both the president and the slave with a kind of familiar equanimity, the poet takes upon himself the role of a representative figure. He is the one who stands. This is what Whitman says in Democratic Vistas. He is the one who stands for what there is in each individual, something so transcendent, something so incapable of gradations that it places all beings on a common level, utterly regardless of the distinctions of intellect, virtue, station, or any height, or any lowliness, whatever. Another way of saying this is that the poet here acts what Stanley Cavell calls as a parable of humanity's commonness. A parable of humanity's commonness. This is a glorious phrase, I think, because it bears the double sense of an affirmation of that which is common to human beings by virtue of their being human. It also stands for a total repudiation of every form of caste or class hierarchy, any aristocratic pretension or air of privilege that might rule out in advance the possibility of conversation, of friendship, of answerability, of moral accountability, of mutual learning between people. But what I find remarkable here, most remarkable in fact, is the way Whitman wants to convey this sense of commonness. 
Whitman's poet does not make his case for the fundamental equality of human persons, nor does he denounce the stubborn persistence of gross inequality to say nothing of slavery in a society otherwise founded on egalitarian principles. Whitman could have done so. Both modes of speech were available to him and were used forcefully by his contemporaries. Just think of Frederick Douglass or, uh, or William Lloyd Garrison. There are, to be sure, fitting moments for both types of speech, the argument and the Jeremiad, as well as for those forms of political dissent and demonstration of civil disobedience, each one of which are themselves further expressions of the longing for a more just society. All of these things were possible. All of these things were available. But here, on this occasion, described by Whitman in Leaves of Grass, the poet simply greets his fellows with words that are available to anyone to say, how are you, friend? Good day, my brother. But words which, when spoken, permit what Whitman calls the common level of their addressees, and hence their true connection to be seen. We could say that with these simple words, how are you, friend? Good day, my brother. With these simple words, the poet establishes the conditions of democratic community. He permits each of them to be seen, the president and the slave, as entirely worthy of one's regard. By his address, the poet occupies the position in between. He thereby transforms both parties into proper objects of love. The poet in this way stands for what is common, for what needn't be argued or given justification, for what is fundamentally shared, for what is there for all to see, for what everyone already knows. Remember the last line? Both understand him and know his speech is right. It's little wonder then that Whitman, very much like Simone Weil, contemplates no form of democratic politics other than the utter refusal to succumb to contempt. For, Whitman says, what poses the greatest danger to the life of a nation is to have certain portions of the people set off from the rest by a line drawn. They not privileged as others, but degraded, humiliated, made no account. By refusing the persistent demands for uncompromising partisan caste or class loyalty, by denying the temptation to pass summary judgment on one's enemies, Whitman's poet tends to the moral conditions of democratic life. He cultivates the spaces between persons so that they might remain morally intelligible to one another, capable of recognizing in one another bearers of the aspiration for a shared future. And that's why, at various points, Whitman's poet casts himself in the role of the sun falling down upon a helpless thing, permitting thereby even the most seemingly loathsome to be seen in a gracious light. This is why Whitman's poet sometimes casts himself like Hermes as inhabiting the circling rivers of breath, joyfully bearing to each the words that would incline their heart to the moral reality of their neighbor in mutual tenderness and democratic love. The question of connection. What is it then between us? as Whitman will ask thematically in his poem, Crossing Brooklyn Ferry. This question of connection is one to which Whitman will return endlessly with a kind of mounting intensity, because upon its answer rests nothing less 
than democracy's coherence and hence its survival. That all sounds wonderful. What does it mean? How might we take the task of Whitman's poet, the shepherd of words, the tender of the spaces between us, a parable of humanity's commonness? What might it mean to take these words seriously? What might it mean to tend to cultivate the spaces in between us? What might it entail for each of us, each and variously, to assume something like the moral vocation of Whitman's poet? It begins, I think, by taking seriously a judgment of the philosopher John Dewey, whose debt to Whitman is almost inexhaustible. He said that uh, Walt Whitman is one of the few to understand that democracy is neither a form of governance nor a social expediency, but rather democracy is a metaphysic of the relation of humanity and their experience in nature. Dewey wrote that anything that foments intolerance and mutual suspicion, anything which bars freedom and fullness of, commu of communication, anything, he says, that sets up barriers that divide human beings into sects and cliques, into antagonistic sects and factions, should be regarded, he said, as treason to the democratic way of life. This judgment, anything that divides human beings, that muddles their ability to communicate with one another, is a form of treason to democracy. This judgment goes hand in hand with Dewey's insistence on the importance of tending or cultivating the conditions of communality, of nurturing those practices that are inseparable from democracy's aspiration. Practices like gathering, cooperation, speaking truthfully, self-questioning, moral hesitation in the presence of another, Compromise, patience. Dewey insisted that it's precisely the day-by-day -day adoption of these practices and their diffusion in every phase of our common life that enables democracy to become a reality. To take the vocation of Whitman's poet seriously also means, I think, taking seriously the fragility of democracy, which is to say there is nothing outside of democracy that guarantees it. Simone Weil herself was incredibly perceptive, I think, to have drawn the analogy between political institutions and what she calls a kind of symbolic language that exists between lovers. Symbolic language like an exchange of rings, an exchange of letters, tokens of mutual devotion, flowers. These symbols, they said, neither initiate the relationship nor do they ensure its stability any more than the beauty of a wedding ceremony or the value of the rings guarantee the inner health of the marriage. But the symbols aren't arbitrary either. Instead, the symbols cultivate the conditions of the relationship so that both it, the relationship, and they, the symbols, acquire depth and complexity and longevity and fecundity so that the relationship is able to grow, she says, like a plant. What Simone Weil is doing here, and what many people have missed, is she's bringing together two alternative visions of politics that run through the history of philosophy. The first, which goes back to Plato and Aristotle, sees politics not as about power or order or responsibility, but sees politics as a pastoral activity an activity that emerges from a people's concern to care for the conditions of their common life. 
Politics, in other words, as a cultivating, a tending, a taking care of beings and things. The second vision of politics that Vey is drawing on here, associated most prominently with Georg Hegel and John Stuart Mill, pictures politics as analogous to a marriage, a particular type of relationship in which two persons who are bound together by nothing more substantial than a reciprocal devotedness discover through the peculiarity of their life together the ethical conditions that would allow their marriage to persist. Both visions of political life are intertwined here with Vey's distinctive use of the term attention, attentiveness. To put it simply, attention is what is owed to the moral reality of another human being. Attention stands for the refusal to reduce another to a caricature, a stereotype, a mere generality that can be summarized at a glance and summarily dismissed, which is to say, attentiveness is the refusal of contempt. Attention is, in this way, a moral activity that accompanies the democratic commitment to equality. For truly attending to another, truly opening ourselves up to the possibility of shared learning, requires nothing less than relinquishing the inclination to see, to use another person as a means to our own end. Attention demands a willingness to have our political goals redefined for the sake of mutual understanding and in the hope of mutual transformation. This involves seeing the other person not as an obstacle to our goals, nor as someone whose consent must be grudgingly gained in order to reach those goals. The type of patient conversation, the type of tact, of care, of articulacy, of compromise that finally yields consent Simone Weil insisted, is no means to some ulterior end. Instead, consent is the end, for it is the expression of the purpose of a morally serious community, like a marriage or a democracy. That is why they insisted that attentiveness, like consent, like equality, like justice itself, is ultimately a work of love. Under the conditions of a pandemic, during which time we grew ever more wary of sharing the same air with our fellow breathers, at this moment, a moment when those who have long languished in a state of moral suffocation due to the persistence of racial cruelty and contempt are asking to be given a voice into the deliberation that will determine our shared future. In a social media age, which has made us profoundly unreal to one another, leading us to despair or deny that we could have any real connection with those with whom we radically disagree, and thus could ever share a shared future at all. In such a time, it seems to me, the moral challenge is to cultivate the space in which others can breathe. For it's only through the essential democratic tasks of patience and withdrawal, of acknowledgement, and remorse of mutual interrogation and truthful silence that we might maintain the conducive interval. What the philosopher Luce Irigare very much in the spirit of Walt Whitman and Simone Weil calls the transcendence between us, fecund in graces and in words. This 
is how democracy's aspiration becomes a moral reality. This is the annual Simone Vile lecture presented by RN's Scott Stevens, who now responds to questions from the audience. I'm a teacher, secondary school, and retiring after 42 years, Wonderful. 43 years next year. In your own field, with the pandemic, and to use the word inspire, like the prevalence of webinars mm. where there's no personal contact. So what do you think about that distancing which has occurred with your field of academia and the whole aspect of getting people enthused about their love of, of learning? That's a wonderful question. Thank you. I, I feel highly morally conflicted about the media over which I work. If this was simply communications technologies, screens and airwaves, and we resigned ourselves to the fact that better some words than no words, given some, better some communication than no communication, if we resigned ourselves to that type of contact with others as the next best thing, then I think that would be quite a moral step. The fact that we've convinced ourselves that we are really engaging with people over screens, that we are really coming in contact with things and ideas, or that we're really communicating with people by means of these artificial technologies, this, as if it were something real, this, I think, has screwed us. Um, I've come to describe screens as a kind of moral prophylactic. Um, it gives us the sense that we're doing something, that we're getting close, but not too close. Certainly not close in a way that might pose some danger to us. It lures us into thinking that we're doing something meaningful when in fact we're not doing something meaningful at all. We all know the experience of being in the presence of somebody and the presence of that person is indispensable from whatever it is that passes between you. We know this because we're human beings. We know the various forms of communication that pass over somebody's face but are never uttered. You know the flash of recognition in somebody's eyes that says, I understood what you just said. You know that little wince of pain, barely suppressed, that says, you're transgressing onto sacred territory. You know the ways that hurt can be registered without those words being spoken. We know that because we know the moral power of the proximity to another human being. It seems to me that we've almost come to regard proximity as an annoyance and a nuisance. We've come to regard being encumbered by someone else's presence, having to kind of uh, treat uh, their presence as something that's demanding. There's a remarkable psychoanalyst and media scholar, Sherry Turkle, who wrote a book six, seven years ago called Reclaiming Conversation. She wrote it in response to a crisis that she was having with her students at university, at MIT. She said that she would write to her students, ask a question, usually students that she was supervising, saying she wanted a meeting with them. And they would come up with every excuse in the book why they could never actually meet. Instead, it was all by email. Now we would do something slightly different, wouldn't we? But it was all by email. And she realized, you know what they're terrified of? They're terrified of the vulnerability of having to be in the presence of another person and possibly being exposed as not quite their best selves. What can you do by email? You can edit. You can manicure. You can dress yourself up so it's your very, very best version. You can make sure that you sound more articulate than you really are. So email, Sherry Turco realized, had become a way of never quite confronting the moral reality of another person, which is why she began insisting office or nothing. So look, we're in an age of screens. Okay, 
I think we're worse off for it. The more that teaching takes place over screens, I think we are losing something incalculable. There is no substituting the moral reality of the presence of another person, the particular timber and tone that you pick up in somebody's voice, the ways in which uh, information, far more than just information, but also persuasion and seduction can only be communicated in person. We are losing something catastrophic, I think, in resigning ourselves to losing those things. Media is what it is. Uh, There's no getting rid of it. Uh, I just think we need to put it back in its moral place. And we certainly shouldn't use it to substitute for being in the presence of others. Thanks, Scott. How can one not love the vision that you've put before us of this democratic universalism, learning to recognise and share what we have in common and so on? I wonder if you could talk a bit about where in this vision the kind of limits and boundaries fit in because obviously to be able to enjoy this type of Mm. universalism some things have to be excluded Mm. some persons and positions have to be beyond the limit and maybe if there have to be limits like that then there also has to be the kind of less beautiful aspects of democracy power the someone's enforcing limits someone's deciding what's allowable in in a democracy? And look, that's the unavoidable question. I think that's the most morally important question. I guess part of my problem is that question is usually the question that gets put first. Because one of the problems is our first rhetorical gesture whenever we're dealing with serious disagreement is to say, is to pull out the Nazi card or to pull out the misogynist card or to pull out the... And as soon as we do that, what you're saying is the person whose moral position or political position you're engaging with is on a continuum that leads to that point, and therefore they're guilty by association, and therefore I'm done talking to you. What I think is kind of interesting is that that for which democracy has no tolerance is that which fundamentally puts to question the possibilities of democracy itself. I think Hannah Arendt was getting at precisely this when she called genocide the crime above all crimes because what it aims at is the very principle of humanity in its glorious diversity. The true object of genocide is human plurality as such. Because of that, it becomes the limit crime. So then if you think about what are those crimes, what are those transgressions within a life of a democracy that so thoroughly corrupts the conditions of democratic life that it somehow radically puts in jeopardy the possibility of democracy itself. And I should, I should say here, one thing I didn't really ever do, I understand democracy as a moral ordering. When uh, Dewey describes Walt Whitman's position as understanding democracy as a metaphysic of the relationship between humans and of humans with nature, I think that's exactly right. The extent to which democracy is predicated upon equality, and not equality in an abstract sense, but equality in the sense that we are answerable to one another. Stanley Cavell puts this a different way. He says, at the heart, or part of the conditions of democratic possibility are, we are one another's teachers. I I love that. I think that John Stuart Mill was suggesting something similar when he said, in any morally serious marriage, the two partners take turns variously looking up to one another and leading one another in turn. That, I think, is just about the most perfect 
summary of a democratic ethos, which means even when the other side wins, it's not the end of the world. And as soon as we use existential language to say, if, that win, if they win, what's at stake is nothing less than the future of, I think we're committing a crime against democracy because there comes a moment when the other side has to lead. And then we learn, we see something through them. So anything, I think, that puts fundamentally at risk the possibility of equality and therefore of mutual learning, anything that says that there is another group of people against whom or from whom a line must be drawn and who thereby are held up as to be degraded, humiliated, counted as no, as counted as nothing, and therefore in a position of, uh, of, of unaccountability, unanswerability. Anything that does that, I think, becomes not just non-negotiable, but intolerable, which is why I think some of the movements in the middle of last century that garnered the greatest degree of moral intensity were precisely those which, upon which hung the giving of a voice to those who had been excluded from democratic life. So I think the short of it is, anything that counts a group of people as being of no account and therefore as not having a voice, anything that regards a group of people as posing an existential threat to the conditions of our common life, anything that so fundamentally breaks people into factions that cannot communicate with one another and therefore hold one another to account, this is where we begin drawing the lines of intolerability. You've been listening to RN's Scott Stevens, who delivered the annual Simone Vile Lecture, an initiative of the Australian Catholic University. You can catch Scott with co-host Walid Ali on The Minefield, a program exploring contemporary ethical issues. That's it for this Big Ideas. I'm Paul Barclay. Thanks for your company. Bye for now. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.